Okay. The, the front of this could make it onto the podcast. You never know. Are we starting? I think we should start. Yeah, let's start. Hi, I'm George Techmanshaw. here with Steve the... Big Cat. Anderson for another Easton Target Archery podcast. And uh, <laughs> it's not going to help. <laughs> we have this, this elaborate new recording rig with thousands, literally, of dollars worth of equipment. Yes. It's true. And it's undone by a keyboard sliding across the desk. <laughs> oh, how are you? How you been? Not bad. How about you? I'm a little jet lagged. You know, yeah. I, I, I was in Japan. and Back that from was, Japan. That was great. We can talk about that a little bit later. But, uh, you know, the, the big thing is the end of the outdoor season, right? I mean, the end of the outdoor season has come and gone. And, and you know, there's that... Uh, that sort of synesthesia thing going on where you, or whatever the name is for the phenomenon, where you reach a certain age and time seems to accelerate a bit? I think I got there six years ago. Yeah. And you know my theory about that. I've mentioned that to you before. It's, you know, I don't know your theory. Okay, so when you're four years old, one year is a quarter of your entire life. Uh, yeah, so you're like, oh man. But when you get to be time. 30... It's a thirtieth of your life, yeah. So not a big deal anymore. your perception's different. Your your flow of time perception is different. I think. Right. At least that's a simplistic explanation for the whole deal. But, and by the way, synesthesia is definitely not the right word for that. But I can't, in my jet lagged state, come up with the right word. <laughs> I'll drop it in right now. Xenosign. Okay, that's the proper <laughs> word. Oh boy, what a weekend that they had down in. Tlaxcala. Mexico. Or something like that. Winning uh, three of the four categories for Hoyt, 100% of the medals for, for yeah. Easton. Yeah, on my end, like with my job, it was cool. Obviously, Easton, another uh, total gold medal sweep. I think they only missed out on... Like one silver one medal, medal, I think. Yeah, I think it was just one. Yeah, so pretty cool uh, for you know for the company employees and and the folks in the management group that follow that stuff and uh, which is a surprising thing they, they really care about that stuff well um, something that we kind of realized a couple years ago is <clears throat> they think it's cool so but they don't know about it happening right they're not up to speed on the sport so yeah i started writing like a company-wide email updating people yeah like on, a company newsletter it's yeah, really useful and cool stuff so yeah it uh in fact it would yeah. make you know let me just say this you're really a good writer and thanks and it would make a great like blog post kind of thing. Yeah, know? I'm a fan of blog posts, I think, because I like to read more than I like to watch video uh, for informative things. Some people really like watching video for informative things. I like watching it if it's an instructional thing. Yeah. But if I'm just reading to like research or getting research or learning about something, I typically like to read it. So I like blogs, but that's going the way of Facebook. Newspapers. <laughs> yeah, like... Yeah. Um, Did you see what's you know, going on with their, their stock? No. Oh, man. Not not pretty. Not Ugh. pretty. But, yeah, it seems everybody else these days is, like, into the, the vlog, right? The video blog. Oh, yeah. Or the like story, that. right? The Instagram story. You know what drives me nuts? I don't check Instagram compulsively like a lot of folks do. I check it maybe once a week, maybe. Right. And so I'll see notices, notifications, where some somebody mentions me in their story. But an Instagram story only lasts 24 hours, right? Yes. So there's no way for me to go in and yeah, look at it. Yeah, you don't it. see it. Yeah, and that's why I, I hate Instagram stories. And I always thought that those expiring stories require just about as much effort in some cases as just do a normal video post, right? Why, why do something with that much transience? Unless it's yeah. something you're not wanting to haunt you later in life when I you're running yeah. for some cabinet secretary post you know <laughs> I, I and it gets dredged up yeah I think it's people the younger crowd likes to see that yeah I get that and I know that I'm not in that demographic yeah. right I'm not a TikTok kind of I you know I ride with some guys on my sport bike and um, they send around TikTok videos a couple of the younger guys and when I say younger they're like your age and uh, homie don't TikTok I don't TikTok yeah. and I don't get the appeal I mean I, I get the appeal I understand how a certain demographic enjoys that kind of thing. And, and we're a little conservative in archery, aren't we? 
a little bit. I mean, we're not exactly bleeding edge when it comes to social media generally in our sport. There's, I mean, archery as a sport always seems about, it's getting better, but it's always seems about at least a decade behind. Okay, but in this case... Sometimes 30 years. In some stuff, yeah. But, I mean, when we're talking social media, we can say three months behind, I guess. Yeah, a long time behind. (laughs) Which is an eternity in social media. It goes back to that thing about a four-year-old, one year of his life. It's like that. Yeah, social media is not that old. Look at that, Steve bringing it full circle. Very good. But, yeah, it was a a blast of a weekend in Mexico. Uh, Linda was down there doing commentary, I guess. um, Yeah, she was doing, like, she was, like, the hype person and doing some of the... Um, Getting the crowd stirred up kind of stuff? show type stuff. And oh, wow. Interviews. And- I, I know about the interviews because I saw the interview that she did with, that she had done with Sarah. That she did, did, did with Sarah. Yeah. And I didn't understand a word, unfortunately, because they, <laughs> they, they, didn't, they didn't provide a translation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. The Mexican crowd certainly enjoyed the interview and, and everybody in Colombia and everyone else in Spanish-speaking countries. It was, know. yeah. And the whole, I mean... I think, you know, being there in Mexico and the fact they had a huge crowd, I think they probably wanted to run that interview because it shows. Oh, right? you know, shows, I'm not I'm yeah. not criticizing that they right. had that just, interview. It made a lot of sense to do that. Yeah. I just think that it would have been nice to have had, you know, some subtitles or something. Yeah, some you understanding. Know. I'll have Linda translate. But yeah. But you know, the the crowd was impressive. That's what I hear. I hear and, it was the whole town basically so turned out. So my friend Junji Ozawa from Japan was the DOS. He said, for one thing, he and the announcer had a perfect sight line to the targets, which is nice. Yeah. But for another thing, the crowd was so into it that they were even asking people like him for autographs and stuff. <laughs> Anybody associated with the event in any way yeah, was getting autograph. totally swamped huh. with adoration by these folks, which tells you you know what? That's a good place for an archery event. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> maybe they should do one down there more often. That's kind of my thinking. I mean, look at the best. We talked about this briefly with uh, World Field. And I said, you know, participation is better in World Field when it's in Europe. Like, oh, yeah, sure. Keep it in Europe. Um, I told you before I mentioned, you know, when I, when I shot in the World Games in Germany. We actually had a gallery going around with, with our squad. Yeah. You know, uh, as we went from target to target, this, this scrum of people followed us. Yeah. Spectators, you know, and um, it was very cool. You so, don't see that. You don't see that in any U.S. domestic event. No. And in field archery. So you've got a good participation going in World Cup events. And obviously World Cup final is a limited event anyways. Yeah. So you don't really need to host an event in a specific area to encourage attendance by competitors right but you could host it in an area that encourages attendance by spectators especially when you're talking about something that is meant to be a show which is what the world cup final is meant to be it's meant to be a show to showcase our sport and my guess is at least i think that's the case i'm no expert you don't know anything i know nothing about anything to do with world you have no knowledge i have no knowledge um (laughs) there's also a uh you know, thing to be said about hosting an event there is probably cost-effective in many ways. Right. Yeah. Um, Maybe so. Depends on. You I know, mean, you know, there's certain, certainly you, you, you're talking satellite trucks and whatever. Maybe that's not trivial to to get into an area like that. Maybe I don't know. But I mean, know. they're an hour from one of the biggest cities in the world, so probably yeah. okay. And I'll, I'll you know, I, I'm just going to hazard a guess and say that maybe hotel rates and stuff are reasonable in a place like that. Yeah, I'm going to guess. You know, all the event setup and labor and stuff like that is probably favorable. Sarah Lopez, man. Um, You know, again, for people who who don't speak English as a first language, when we call someone a goat, we are not talking about the animal here. Goat means greatest of all time. It's a very, very esteemed compliment. It is an esteemed compliment in the sport of archery and in many other sports. Sarah Lopez proved goat status. Goat status. I I think I wrote it in an email to the company yesterday. I said she won her seventh World Cup final title. That's yeah. like Tom Brady winning seven Super Bowls. It is. That's not so a kind of the same exaggeration. Kind of the same thing, and you know, it's a fleeting. Your your World Cup career is fleeting. Tom Brady's NFL career has been 
obviously the longest of really anyone, but even then it's it's a short window of time. You have to have an incredible win rate at an event where it's very hard to win, to win seven of them, like Sarah has done. Yeah, and it obviously puts, you know, Sarah did not have the greatest season leading up to this, right? Um, I mean, she took a bronze medal in very convincing fashion with a perfect score in, uh, was it in Turkey earlier this year? I can't remember which event it was. No, that was in... Because um, I'm no expert. That was the last... Sorry. That was all the that last effort, World All Cup that effort, and, and it gets submarine yes. by your phone being left on blast. That was the last World Cup of the year, I think, in... Was it in Colombia? Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it was right. at home. It was, yeah. it was at home in Colombia. That's right. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I think that she really was starting to generate a certain amount of momentum. I mean, she did really, I mean, obviously, you know, World Games performance, that kind of thing. But I, you're, you're mentioned Tom Brady winning the seventh Super Bowl, right? I mean, that's not a bad analogy, really. It's very much the same, yeah. Ella Gibson proving that she's uh, a force to be reckoned with, too. GBR's Ella Gibson took um, silver. But you know who else impressed me was Alejandro Schiano from Colombia. Whose name I heard pronounced about nine different ways on. <laughs> yeah, Usquiano. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Ella came, you know, and had that huge season. Um, you know, it was right up there with some of the best seasons ever. Yeah. Uh, you kind of, I think, to get that title of best season ever, you need to have the World Cup final win. Yeah, I agree. But it reminded me, like, I don't know, probably twenty, twelve or thirteen. Roger Willett was winning everything. Yep. The difference is Roger Willett would qualify like 35th and then win the event. He right. did that like, I think he won every World Cup that year. Yeah. And Ella won every World Cup she went to. Yeah. Uh, but she qualified first at most of them, I think. She so, did very well, which yeah. is, you know, bucking the trend, generally speaking, when you talk about qualifying versus winning in a lot of these things. Now, on the compound side, to be fair, uh, you, you do see more often that the top qualifier is the winner, I think, statistically. But I'm no expert. But, you know, when you consider the overall difficulty of getting to that level and then getting through the brackets, on the compound side, once you get that momentum going, it's not a bad thing for you. Right. And it's nice to qualify number one. And you hope you have an easier road, you know. But you it depends solely on what everyone else has done. So, you know. But, again... Um, and, and congratulations for you guys at Hoyt. I mean, uh, you know, engineering a new bow and having it come out of the gate and win that prestigious event at its first event. Really. Yeah, yeah, on the compound side, both men and women, and then uh, yeah, the recurve, new, uh, the new recurve XD yeah. and and Axia. Uh, it's no, it's no uh, trivial thing to say that Kim Woo Jin picked up a Formula Series bow. Something no. he's never messed with before. He's always preferred the gold medalist, GMX, Exceed type He's bows. always shot that TD4 geometry yeah. type with situation. With an ILF limb system. And, and actually the geometry of the bow is uh, tweaked this year. So that's another consideration. Yeah, XD is different from all those. So it, it's quite a, it's like a complete departure from what he's been awesome with for years and years and years yeah and but he's picked it up a few weeks ago and yeah. clearly he would he had the confidence and kind of proved that it was not a gamble yeah he shot it well uh, he so. did he shot it really well it was um, yeah the whole thing though i mean but we're jumping ahead um yeah because we'll back. We, we need to talk about uh well i mentioned alejandra taking the bronze and and the reason i'm impressed with alejandra is her consistency over the past 10 years she's always been a contender you know, yeah. um, just she a strong... She well, 10 years ago, right? Yeah. In Paris. Yeah. And she's, uh, you know, very consistent shooter. I, I am always happy to see her performing well. She's a, uh, a very uh, friendly face of competition in our sport and uh, a credit to Colombia, just like Sarah Lopez. What is it with Colombia uh, and, and women's compound in your opinion, what's what's the secret there? Why are they so good? To hit a terrible sports cliche, iron sharpens iron, right? So you get one who's really awesome, like Sarah, coming up, and Alejandra obviously was showing some competitive chops as well, and then the both of them just continue to elevate, and 
you know, Sarah took things to a completely new level for the whole sport of women's compound archery. Yeah. And, you know, everyone else, they want to stay competitive, so they, they figure out how to follow. And there's a little bit of a psychology there, too. They see, like, oh, okay, you know, I have shot with her, and I beat her even sometimes, and now she's doing this, so why am I not capable? And then they go, I am capable. And they go, and they can figure out how to do good things, too. You know, you just you see what is possible, and it kind of helps open up um, those possibilities for yourself, too. It was about 2016, I think, maybe 2014, I can't remember anymore, when I first coined the nickname Mr. Perfect for Mike Schlusser. And when I did that, I had no idea it was going to stick that long. At what event did you coin that at? The Nîmes European Indoor, where he oh. shot the first perfect he shot score. the 600. The 600. And, uh, you know, I never really expected a silly moniker like that to stay. You know, it was just a spontaneous thing as I was announcing. But uh, it seems to have been embraced, and uh, it's still being used today, and it's proven to be appropriate. Because once again, on the final, Mike Schlusser put forth, as you put it, an awesome performance, but you can't tell me that you didn't look at that semifinal and go, oh boy. I... Watching that semifinal in that last arrow, and you're just like, holy smokes. How did he get away with that? Yeah, so if you didn't watch, Mike got to full draw, goes to get his thumb on the barrel, he has a little bit of a, a flinch. And, a little bit of a flinch? Yeah, he comes, he draws down, he lets down, right? And he, uh, at this point, he's got maybe 10 seconds, 11 seconds. Uh, he, maybe, yeah. Yeah, he draws it back, keeps it together. All he needed to do is hit the target, I think, to win, but you run out of time and we've seen guys run out of time when a situation like that happens then it's hard to get the bow back to full draw and keep the arrow on the rest so he did that no issue hammered home a nine moved on to the and i think that was for a 149 or something like that yeah might have been 140 i don't remember but what, whatever but the fact that he caught yeah. gold yeah he shot it he was just fine moved on to the gold medal match i mean i thought he was lucky to have it on paper the way the whole thing looked yeah then but i'm no expert everyone everyone's uh you know, watching in that gold medal match because these guys are not letting up. I think it was, I think Nico missed his tenth or eleventh arrow. Yeah, that was the first nine. That was the first point dropped. Yeah, and Mike. Uh, and by Nico, we mean Nico Girard from yeah, France. Uh, there's a couple of Nicos running around. There are a couple of Nicos running around. It's it's now the performance name in archery. Yes, so. It was a tight match, clear. I mean, clear to the end. And Mike needs a 10 to win and shoot a perfect 150 to win World Cup final gold. And everyone's like, oh, what's he going to do here? And he get, gets it back to full draw and pipes one. I mean, down the middle. And you're like, oh, okay. No drama. It was uh, really cool to see. So. Yeah, he really made it look easy. But lesser people might possibly have had after effects from something like that he was able to shake it off yeah he didn't you know he didn't let it come back to bother him and that's that's hard to do i don't think i would have been able to make it anywhere through the first part of that match you know yeah uh, he's an experienced dude and he's had more time in gold medal finals than probably anybody in the world possibly the like next two people combined could be yeah and you know we'll have to see how many arrows has mike shot in a gold medal final we'll right. have to check with the uh, the saber metrics. Yeah, I'm sure there's an expert out there that can answer that question. We'll ask them. Yes. Now, um, the other one that impressed me, of course, was Nico Girard from France. Nico, as some people will recall, was not the pick originally to go to the World Cup for France for their Paris leg earlier this season. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, apparently, he was sort of a substitute. Then he wins. And he wins. And then he shows up here and he takes silver. That's really impressive. Just making it happen. Yeah. Getting it done. Yeah. But you know what else is impressive to me? Who's, I, I think, by the way, a really nice person. Jean Pizarro from Puerto yeah. Rico. He's a cool guy. He's a nice guy. And um, he's, a, he's a multitasking kind of guy. He is like... 
the head of the federation. He's the head coach. And he's their top athlete as well. He's the Jackie Moon. Jackie Moon. Explain that for people movie, who don't know who Jackie Moon is. There's a movie called Semi-Pro with Will Ferrell where he is a player coach owner of a semi-pro basketball team, the Flint Tropics. So kind of like what would have happened if Michael <laughs> Jordan had done what he was planning to do with baseball, I think, at one time, right? I mean, something like that, yeah. But, yeah, he, uh, John Pizarro does it all. He's he's a busy guy there. So He is. You know, he's not just that. He's also, like, um, team manager on these trips, right? Uh, he was probably, when He was going yeah. to Korea earlier this year when I saw him in Guangzhou. Yeah. He might oftentimes be the only one. I don't know, but... Yeah, he he's handling the whole business side of it. So, um, recurve Sunday, uh, I think that that was a one hundred percent X ten sweep, yes. and the entire field. In fact, we saw um, every single shooter using X ten arrows, and therefore, you know, when you saw the Korean archers Choi Misun and and San, pretty well dominated all the way through. Um, I'll say I think they actually were their most vulnerable. Like they didn't shoot their best, but they were still so much better than everybody else. The Koreans on a bad day are as good as the best on a good day for the rest of the world. Yeah, Yeah. it's it was. I don't think they were really challenged. You know, Um, there's you know they got some set points taken off them, but uh, just my impression of it was like okay, I've seen them better, Mm -hmm. but they're still winning fairly handily stress-free yeah so it was just you know kind of a I don't know I doubt they were like stoked on their performance yeah um you know we had Katharina Bauer there uh Peng Chiamao of Chinese Taipei uh Brownie Pittman Great Britain anyway the um situation was uh really positive with the men when you look at Kim Woojin right I mean another guy that I think is qualified for GOAT status. It's hard to it's hard to take that away from him. The easy way is to say, well, he doesn't have an Olympic individual gold medal. And I'll still say, well, yeah, him and Brady, neither yeah. of them do. Yeah. And I put them as the two best. Most consistent. But yeah, I mean, it's a different world, the modern era of World Cup archery versus prior World Cup when it was, you know, Grand Prix and World Championships that were World Championships were regular, but the Grand Prix seemed more infrequent, informal. Um, well, you know. you know, to your point, I mean, World Championships were every two years then. Right. Um, Grand Prix, as you say, depends on what region you were in. There could yeah. be, you know, different considerations there. Still Grand Prix circuits in, in various federations, but you didn't have the head-to-head competition of global not the, not the consistent like you yeah. yeah you wouldn't see um some of the people that you see regularly now um more often than every couple of years yeah maybe once a year if you were super competitive and right now you see these guys five times a year that's right so you get and you get just there's too much on the line there's enough money involved that you really have these Everyone's a full-time archer in that side, you know. Really, in the uh, <clears throat> in the World Cup side, on recurve, they're all full-time archers. The other reason that I say Kim Woojin has uh, dibs on goat status is just his longevity. Yeah, he's been three world championships, top. one of them ten years apart. You know, I, you're looking at a situation where this guy has been so strong and consistent. You know, uh, I think Rio was a. Um, an anomaly where he, you know, set that Olympic record, set that world record while setting that Olympic record, and then kind of went out in a blaze of yeah, whatever. But I believe that uh, we're going to see him. I, I really think we're seeing him starting to ramp up for Paris. I really feel that way. Yeah, and going back to the old goat discussion, I I give it to both him and Brady. Brady will always. Get I'm not it taking anything away from Brady here. Yeah, Brady will always get it for me because of the 900 at Vegas. Oh, like that's that puts him unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, you I, you can't wrap your mind around that. People have trouble doing that with a compound bow. Top people have trouble doing that with a compound bow. He goes out there and does it with a free yeah. recurve. 
It's mind bottling, as they would say. Mind bottling. It puts your mind in a bottle. You know, my uh, my sister, who's something of a of a, a linguist, has a kind of interest in the English language, texted me in despair the other day, because apparently it has now become okay to use the term irregardless. It's been accepted <laughs> into the dictionary. No. Yes. Oh, irregardless. So which is the same as regardless, but with unnecessary words. I'm just thinking that they're they, what they need to do is just go back to old old episodes of The Sopranos, and start pulling some of the malapropisms that were used there, and just start throwing those. We're in a real stagmire here, Steve. We're in a real stagmire. If you took the first few letters of irregardless and you irregarded them, you would have it right. Uh huh. Yes. I was horrified by that, and so was she. <laughs> anyway, that. Uh, I digress. You but. know what was cool, and I've said this before, though. Kim Woo Jin called that 700 in yes. May. Yes. In 2016, he said, "I'll break." The, he said, "I'll break M. Dong Hyun's world record at the Olympics," and Which we all knew that means he has to shoot 700. Yeah. And he did it. Yeah. It's freaking amazing. Yeah. Really amazing. Uh, Metakazos proved that you know his. Olympic championship was not a fluke. No, he's not a flash in the pan. Took the bronze. Also, Miguel Alvarino, European champion. Yeah. uh, Yeah, World Cup champion earlier this year. Uh, It was really interesting to see Miguel and Kim Woo-jin shooting identical bows on that stage for the final. They both shot. Great for me. (laughs) For you you white guys, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, in all seriousness, though... um, Stuff like this really validates new stuff, and I think that's a very cool thing. I, I made a uh, personal social media post that uh, expressed the idea that Zach Kurtzels and the Hoyt engineers <laughs> were probably popping a beer <sighs> at the end of that weekend. We were pretty happy with how things went. Yeah, it was yeah, really great finish to the outdoor season. And uh, so, yeah, that was uh, a special World Cup final. I think we called a few of those. I think I called all of them, but uh, I picked Choi Mee-soon in women's recurve. And I picked Ansan. Yeah, so... But I'm no expert. Anyway, moving on. Japan was a uh, a great thing to get back to after... Yeah, what did you do all there? All this time. So, did a couple of seminars, um, working with uh, Philip at Shibuya. Reached... Uh, I can't remember the total numbers, but it's something on the order of six or seven hundred folks that watched those two seminars, and uh, you know they were done online on on YouTube uh, with Philip translating. I got a lot of texts from friends of mine who watched them and said it was really funny watching a white guy translate into Japanese, <laughs> but they had no idea what an expert in uh, in the language Philip is. Right. Um, but uh, you know, Philip. Uh, Funny thing about Philip, you know, a lot of folks know Phil from from Shibuya. He's been going to more and more events. Philip's first job ever was translating for me in a compound seminar that I did. I'm thinking it was 2003 at Hasco Archery in Osaka when he was a student in Osaka, Japan, studying Japanese. Hmm. And he did the translation work for my recurve seminar with no drama because he was a recurve shooter. Right. But when it came to compound, there was some searching for terms because there are no native terms in Japanese for some elements of the compound bow. So they borrow some of the same some of the same phrases, including basically calling it compound. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, so that was his first gig, and now he's become kind of a force to reckon with in the international archery business. Been very involved, yeah. Yeah, very involved, and. Uh, that's cool, you know, where you can kind of do what we've done and, and take your passion and turn it into your work. You know, there's a cliche about if you enjoy what you're doing for work, then it's not really work. And, and for Phil, he gets to do it in Japan, and, yeah. you know, he's got a wife and two kids? Yeah, yeah, twins. Oh, man. Yeah, so he doesn't get any sleep. <laughs> that stinks. So, yeah. Uh, I got to Japan, and um, first thing that happened was I, I got to I got to reunite with my my uh, adopted family in Japan, Yoshi Kamatsu and his wife and kids. And uh, kids, man, his oldest son is in high school now, which 
I mean, I was, you know, holding him when he was like maybe three weeks old. And now he's in high school. Where did the time go? It's crazy. Well, to you, George, the time doesn't seem like as much. But to him, because it's only now one sixteenth of his life. Feels like time forever. feels fast. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the tradition for the Komatsu family when, when I visit is we all go out to an Italian restaurant in their neighborhood. I know we're in Tokyo, but we go out to this Italian place. So I had an Italian dinner. Then the next day, I get a call from Philip. Hey, you want to meet up for lunch? I'm like, yeah, sure. Gives me this address for a restaurant in Shinjuku, and I go to this restaurant. It's an Italian restaurant. Oh, man. So I have Italian for lunch. Was it legit? Was it something really? Oh, it's all, you know what? They, they actually, I mean, okay, would, would an actual Italian food guy like Matteo from Ianseo approve? Some of it, yeah. So it was pretty high-end, like Olive Garden. No. <laughs> no, it was actually really, it's actually very, very good. I, It's just not, yeah. I'm in Tokyo, darn it. You yeah, know? you're like, hey, what's up? So anyway, I I, uh, I shouldn't turn this into a travel log, but um, that evening, I, I get a call from Yoshi, and he's like, hey, kids want to see you. Can we, can we go out to dinner again? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Where are we going? Another Italian place. <laughs> Just all That's three. Italian. My my all three meals in a row because I didn't have breakfast that morning. All three meals in a row when I got to Japan were Italian food. <laughs> so the next morning, I get to uh, I get to Shibuya and or I should say that same day that I had you know the the first seminar after lunch with Philip. Next day, do another seminar. Uh, I can't remember what I had for dinner, but it was not Italian. And then went to Osaka uh, the next day, had a visit with our friends at Hasco Archery. Um, they're kind of a really cool pro shop in, in Osaka. And um, we went out to the Korean part of town. So I had basically Korean grilled meat. Still haven't had Still haven't had a food. Japanese dinner. So, on the way out, you know, after five, I think six hours of uh, of work at Hasco, uh, Mr. Hase himself throws me into his Porsche to take me to the train station. And on the way, we stop at a at uh, the New Otani, and finally, I get to sit down at the sushi bar, which was very good, and. That was the only sushi dinner <laughs> I had the whole time. Huh. Anyway, uh, get back to Tokyo that night. Next morning, um, uh, working on other stuff. Go to the Nationals. And um, the Nationals are, for the first time, at the same venue that was created for the Olympic Games at Yumenoshima Park in Tokyo, on the waterfront down in Tokyo Bay, near Odaiba, for people who know Tokyo. And it was really a great venue. Um, just, I mean, it's interesting to me that almost none of the infrastructure on the finals field exists. It's a running track now. It's just a big open field with a cinder track for running. But on the qualifying field that was built, or I should say the, the ranking field that was built for Tokyo 2020, that finally got used in 2021, um, that big um, Ramada that they put up with the sunshade is mm -hmm. there, that two-story Ramada. Uh, the concrete pad for the shooting line is there. But they had to rip out all of the infrastructure, the electronics and the lights, because the city of Tokyo didn't want them, because they'd have to maintain them. Mm -hmm. So the big stadium lights and stuff that were put up? All gone. All gone. Um, there's a big back berm. Um, you could shoot 90 meters there, I think, pretty easily. But uh, it is a fight that they had to put up to be able to make it a dedicated archery field. Because the city had originally wanted it to be a multi-purpose field. Now think about this. You turn that thing into a soccer field and what happens? 
you got to account for every single arrow that gets mm, shot yeah. on that field. Someone misses one, you got an arrow in the ground. They got to find it. Some kid goes for a nice slide tackle. Yeah, Boom. that's why. And so um, they still do that, by the way. They still account for every single arrow, but it doesn't have the same risk as the situation that would exist if they did have rugby out there and yeah you know uh there's a certain amount of american football that they play in japan or soccer or other field sports maybe lacrosse whatever that would might require people to slide on the grass so completely different whole different thing you know kind of like the situation in great britain where they can't use all carbon arrows on certain fields because of the difficulty in finding them yeah Anyway, it was a really good uh, good event. Uh, I was about to make a metal detector joke right there, but I don't. I I couldn't get anything to the tip of my tongue fast enough, so I'm not ready for it. But on a related note, Yuta Yamamoto won the barebow. Yuta. So now he, is he uh, on a related the trifecta? Note. On a related note. Yes. Yes, he's completed the trifecta. He's won recurve, compound, and barebow in Japan. Just yeah, feels competed like at the world championship game. twice with compound. Uh, he's just a winner. He's a, you know what? He really is. He's super competitive guy, but also one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. You know, um, one of the great things about the, uh, oh, by the way, the uh, Stratos, your new compound bow. Yes. Uh, with X10s, uh, X10 Pro Tours, actually won in its maiden debut, debut in Japan. So, it's a winning bow. Man. It's a winning bow. Anyway. Indoor season is upon us now, for real. Yeah. And, and boy, did I notice it because when I got to the airport here in Salt Lake City, I thought, whoa, you know, I, yeah, 72. Right. By the way, this is the best time of year to go to Japan for a couple of reasons. One, besides the fact that the yen is now worth about 149 yen to a dollar, um, it's really nice weather. It's not super not humid, humid, not super hot, muggy. not muggy, uh, not mushi atsui, as they say you know, in, in Japan for, you know how they say that Inuit Native American people who live in the North, uh, have many different names for snow. No. Well, they do. <laughs> in Japan, they have many different names for humidity. Just, okay. Yeah. So Mushiatsui basically means buggy hot. And I you can, can relate to you that. can, you can relate to that, right? Yeah. I mean, Yankton is often yeah, Mushiatsui. I, I immediately thought Yankton was like, man, Right, but Alabama. Alabama is more just like, it's like a wet hot. Yeah, and there'd, there'd be a name for that. Yeah, and then you've got the Salt Lake World Cup, which is dry hot, open oven hot. Yes, open oven hot. Yeah, especially on the uh, on the astroturf. But anyway, indoor season it's upon us, and we are now in a mode of. Uh, in most places around the world, not Australia, um, getting ready for indoor season. And yeah. we have ourselves the JVD Open right around the corner, which you're getting ready to go to, right? Going to JVD Open, yeah. Pretty unprepared, but uh, I don't care. You know, whatever. It's all good. Just going to, yeah, it's a long season. I used to really like The indoor season is a long season, yeah. yeah. I used to get all gung-ho and go hard through October, sometimes even before. Then you hit, like, the holiday season, you're like, I'm pretty, you know, good. And then you just get tired of it. You get tired, you get a little burnt out by the time it matters. So I'm going to start getting gung-ho about December, maybe late November. I haven't decided yet. I saw that the Utah Open, the name at least, is being resurrected at a different club now. With the, Yes. So that's kind of interesting. I think that's nice that they're keeping that legacy going. Yeah, it's the same week as... Uh, JVD Open. Oh, so, that's a shame. Yeah, I always liked going to my local events, and I, I think that something archery is missing uh, with professional archers is more regional attendance. We've gotten so everyone thinks their organizations are so important that they just keep stacking events up, and it's like we have not left any like decent gaps in the schedule, and the guys who are professionals and who people want to be around, amateurs want to mingle with. They're so busy. They're not taking a free weekend and going to go, oh, I'll go shoot this club shooter. I'm going to go shoot Utah Open near my house because they're tired. And 
I think we need to get back to having more regional attendance by top professionals shooting shooting their local events and events in their state and things of that nature so yeah it's uh obviously you know no matter when jvd or anybody schedules a tournament you're scheduling it over a local shoot always there's always something somewhere in the world but you know this is one i always like to go to usually it was my eh, first or second tournament of the year and uh yeah i won't get to do it this year there are a few events that uh around the world that are becoming must have events though this is one of them jvd open yeah it used the, to be uh face-to-face -face. you know this tournament yeah. used to be the face-to-face -face and it had a unique format have they preserved the unique format for this uh no this is a vegas style format okay so this year we have a number of events going on i'm going to be going to the one in taiwan in chinese taipei oh yeah that's a World Archery World Series, right? Yep, part of that. And uh, Are you going there to uh, be the DOS announce? I'm going to announce. Huh. I know that I don't have much experience in that area, but I, uh, I'll do the best I can Yeah. with what I got. Try hard. I'll try. Anyway, uh, indoor season prep. What uh, kind of things, Steve, do you feel are important mentally as you get ready for indoor season? <sighs> You know what I'm dealing with a lot is people who they have to remember that there's they need to spend some time shooting right like you need to shoot a little bit and not be sitting there chasing equipment all the time yeah you know like give it some time do you think the best thing to do would be to take your outdoor rig and, and just replate it and, and tune for your indoor setup or that's what I do so I just simply, it's a rest adjustment and usually a peep adjustment. And then I'm good and comfy again at 20 yards and I can go shoot, right? You keep but, your same uh, diopter? No, I have different scope, different. So that's all different. I guess, yeah, pretty much everything's different when you really think about it that way. Okay, but um, I'm, I'm curious about how the, I think that there's a correlation between what you perceive with your aperture or occluder, however you go with it and your comfort level when you're aiming. So I kind of wanted to maybe get your thoughts on that. Well, are you talking like the size of the dot? Or size of the that? dot, whether the dot covers the 10, whether the dot is, or, or a ring, some folks use a ring. Yeah, right? I'm a dot user and I always have been and uh, no experience with anything else except a pin, which I don't like for indoors because I like concentricity and- Concentricity yeah. works better round targets the human eye the pupil is round yeah round on round works for the human eye really well if you shot no anything if you shot just a higher power lens like say six or eight and no dot nothing on the lens you could probably shoot a pretty good score anyhow yeah because most people will align the be kind of like using an open ring yeah you'd align the circles of your scope and the circles on the target and you would shoot that way now for recurve shooters who develop issues with execution sometimes using an open ring can be really really helpful right no dot yeah um whereas some shooters some recurve shooters uh they like to aim fine um you know there's an interesting i would say split going on in our sport right now when you consider you've got guys like Jack Williams and Brady, in my personal experience, and there's others, I think Matt Nofel falls into this category for among U.S. shooters, and some others, I think, coming out of Chula Vista, for heavy recurve setups, and by heavy, I don't mean draw weight, I mean mass weight. Yeah, a lot of stabilizer weight. They start feeling like compound bows to me, and the aiming philosophy seems to have a little bit of compound element to it. Yeah, they're all shooting a little mini scope with no magnification, but same... Only because it's not allowed. Yeah. Same type of principle, though. It's a, you know, a glass lens with a dot. And the Koreans are still shooting either open apertures or, you know, the shrouded Shiboya pin. Right. And I think it's interesting that the Koreans are still shooting light mass recurve bows with lower poundage or, or sorry, lower mass weight stabilization, lower mass weight weights on their stabilizers, to be clear. Um, more what I would consider to be from my era of competition. And 
I know the Koreans are notoriously conservative when it comes to playing with equipment, but I wonder if it isn't related to the fact that they have no real means of dealing with execution issues in their programs. They, they just cycle you out? Uh-huh. That's because, nice. Because aiming hard with a recurve can lead to those problems. Yeah. So they don't have to deal with target panic because that person just disappears from the program. And then someone else comes in and they handle that. They, they have told me repeatedly they don't know how to deal with it because they don't have to. <laughs> That's sweet. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I'll tell you, I believe that that phenomenon is the biggest impediment to growth in our sport. If we could retain everybody who drops out of our sport because of not being able to deal with that phenomenon. target panic. I, I don't even like using the term, but yeah. Yeah, it's like Lord Voldemort. Yeah. Just don't say it. Right. I, I really believe that... Uh, I call it anticipation. It's solvable. It's absolutely solvable, but it requires effort. It requires effort, and it requires a mental commitment, usually before you get to full draw, and I think that's where a lot of people fail. And, you know, as we're talking about entering into indoor season, you get a lot of people who are trying to over-perfect everything. Yep. And they want the bow to just sit in the middle and never move. And it can't. Right? Yeah, and you're like, hey, you need to shoot a little bit and get really adept with this unit. Right. And then it will get better on certain days. And certain days it'll be crap. But... You gotta accept that, though. Yeah, you have to learn how to be a shooter. Yeah. Right? And... That's what I'm driving at here, Steve. That's why I brought this up. Because I think that an awful lot of people get triggered into execution problems by indoor season. Yeah, oh yeah. They, I mean, you see releases getting sped up, weird things happening with releases. I mean... Yeah, anytime you're out of the conventional norm of how to shoot a release, you're probably heading towards a disaster, you know? But it's the exact same shot that you... And in fact, arguably an easier shot because you don't have to worry about wind. You just got to stay relaxed and calm, uh, calm and, and literally wait. Right. And it's one of those things, like, if you've ever coached someone through a team round or heard someone talk about a team round, you'll hear them say... If you try to go fast, you'll go slower. If you try to just do everything smooth and, you know, correctly, you'll go faster. And in indoor, and this is a problem I have faced because I am usually trying to get a volume of arrows in, is I will, I will or other people will start to shortcut the whole process because they just want to, they're like, I just want to fire this arrow. I want it. It's there. It's in the middle. Just fire it. Go. Load another one. Move on. And it's like, hey, take a step back, be patient, wait on the bow, and you'll fire arrows plenty fast. You know, Time that, will not be a problem. That smooth is fast attitude isn't mm-hmm. just applicable to archery. It's everywhere. It's applicable to racing a motorcycle. Yep. It's applicable to racing a car. It's applicable to speed shooting uh, pistols, USPSA. Mm-hmm. Smooth is fast. It's a remarkable thing that if you focus on smoothness rather than trying to sh- trying to just go quickly, you will naturally go quickly more yeah. with, with less effort. It's the truth. And in uh, an indoor, like you said, it can lead to you know whatever it is about indoor. I think the perfection required and the perfection expected, and you know people are getting new equipment, new releases, new bows, new stabilizers, and they're like, okay, this has got to make me better. It's like, hey, eventually, like, you you can get stuff that works better with you or that you like better or you prefer to add to your confidence, but eventually it's all on you, you know, and it's like there's a, there's a talent level that comes into play, and then there's an approach factor, right, and how you approach it and doing things the right way that all plays in as well. And then just accepting the fact that like you literally cannot just sit there and aim in the middle. You can't buy your way to that. So, you know, it's interesting that time. you could have substituted golf for archery with what you just said in the last 10 sentences. Yeah. I mean, it would have been the same. Right. Or 
competitive shooting, um, you know, firearms, mm -hmm. or arguably to a point, um, racing. Yeah. You know, all of these things that, that you and I have both have experience in are, it's remarkable the number of parallels that we see. And it's because there's one common nexus, how the brain works around these challenges that we put on ourselves. And I think that uh, as you get ready for indoor season, the best advice is go for smoothness and patience. Yeah, that, I mean, that would be, that's what I'm gonna tell myself this week when I get going. So just try to be smooth, try to make well-executed shots, be patient, don't, when you see it in the middle, don't go, oh, come on, go, go, go. Wait it out. Shots will break quickly. They'll go in the middle. I'll gain confidence. Then I'll screw something up. Then I'll go back to doing what I had said I was going to do at the start of the season. I'll get better. Hopefully that's like the day before Vegas, and I'm awesome again, and I can be competitive at Vegas. All right. So I think that uh, we could call that a show. That's the whole indoor season right there. Yeah. And it's time for another Easton 100th Anniversary Book Giveaway. And for this week, once again, we've got Greg Easton to announce the winners. Very good. Thank you, George. I want to send out a book right away to Russ Sharman. Russ, I hope you enjoy the book. And to Micah Alio. Mika Aulio. Mika Alio. Very good. Sorry about that. He's from Mika. Finland, so you can't ah, help it. Yes. Sorry, Mika. Enjoy so, the book. So you know a secret? A secret is that when we had our World Cups, our first, it's, this secret started back in... 2009, when you brought the Youth World Championship to Ogden, Utah. Yep. I used to have to go to Ted Palamaki. <laughs> well, actually, Ted came to me. Ted came to me with a complaint. He didn't like the way that I was pronouncing the names of the shooters from Finland. Was butchering used the word? That might no. have been the word. Okay, good, yeah. All right. And so, after that, I made sure that I went to Ted for every one of those events that we put on, the Youth World Championship, the World Cup, and I made sure, as best I could, to respect the pronunciation of the names of archers from Finland. So Mika, who happens to be a coach in Finland, yeah. um, there you go. All right. 